0: Again, everyone, and welcome to the frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network 1350 on your AM dial serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you could have access to all of our station's content. And also please be sure to follow Joe and I on social media, wherever you find us, where you can click, or share, or like, or whatever the case might be, can help us out a little bit. That would be greatly appreciated. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by political science Professor Patrick Deneen. And most of you out there know who Professor Deneen is, however, all right, I would like to give uh, Professor Deneen a little bit of an introduction. Uh, Patrick Deneen is Professor of Political Science and holds a David A. Potenziani Memorial Chair of constant wow, that was a mouthful. <laughs> uh, of constitutional studies at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, prior to joining the faculty of Notre Dame in 2012, he taught at both Princeton and Georgetown. He also, before then, served as principal speechwriter and special assistant. To the director of the u.s information agency joseph duffy uh his intellectual interests and publications are ranging including ancient political thought american political thought liberalism which we're going to be talking about today conservatism which we're going to be talking about today religion and politics and literature and politics he's written four books and edited three others in books his books include the odyssey of political theory democratic faith conserving america with a question mark. And most recently, Why Liberalism Failed, which appeared in January 2018, Yale University Press. Um, And uh, by the way, Why Liberalism Failed has now been translated into 20 Languages. I think that means it's an important book. Um, in addition to academic work, he frequently writes for journals of opinion, including First Things, The American Conservative, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. Danine lives in South Bend, Indiana, with his wife and three children, and our per- and our parishioners at St. Joseph Parish in South Bend. Professor Patrick Danine, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thanks very much. It's good to
2: be with you, if virtually, as a. Uh... Uh, as someone who grew up in the state, great state of Connecticut, so uh, uh, it's nice to uh, it's nice to hear some familiar accents as well.
1: <laughs> the coffee is on, my friend. The coffee is on. That's for sure. Let's begin with a prayer. All good things start with a prayer, and this is a good thing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O Most Gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided, inspired by this confidence. We fly into you, O Virgin, of virgins, our mother. To you we come before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Saint Dominic. Pray for, Pray for us in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dr. Janine, we'll get right into it. You know, you hear a lot of words thrown around, particularly the, the terms liberalism, conservatism. Um, Joe and I believe that most people don't exactly know what those words mean. You wrote that book, as Joe said, Why Liberalism Failed. Define for us liberalism.
2: Yeah, so the word liberalism is, if you think about it for a second, it has the word liberty in it or aversion of the word liberty. It's from the ancient language, Latin. There's a Greek version of the word. It's a very ancient concept. Uh, So what is it, this word liberalism, which is we would think of it as a modern concept. We would think of it as something uh, that defines modern politics. How is it that a word that's so ancient nevertheless comes to define what we think of as something modern? And it really comes down to a change of the definition of the word liberty. So it's the same word. Liberty is the same word for the ancient Romans, for the, you know, for uh, the uh, uh, at the time that that Jesus was alive, uh, the word was used, uh, uh, but it meant something fundamentally different. In in ancient time, in both classical philosophy and uh, in the scripture, when the word freedom or the word liberty is used, what's meant is the uh, kind of the learned capacity to govern yourself. That's what freedom means it's a kind of form of self-government. It's when we learn to control the base or part of our nature, whether as an individual, whether as a political entity. A free people is not some people who do what they want, it's people who do the right thing. So a free people is a virtuous people, people who have learned and been steeped in virtue what the change of definition occurs in the modern era, roughly 500 years ago, 400 years ago, it becomes both a theological concept and a political concept. And what it comes to mean is the freedom to do as you wish, the freedom to do what you want, uh, and a politics flows from that. Uh, And it is the politics that in many ways comes to define how we think of freedom in the United States. It's the liberal order. the contest that we have as a polity in a liberal order tends to be over what means best to ensure that we can do what we want is it if you're a conservative so called you tend to think it's the market the market is the space where we can do what we want and if you're a liberal so called or a progressive it's kind of in the it's in the personal realm especially the sexual realm where you can do what you want but these are really contests it's contestation over the means of achieving modern freedom rather than a kind of more fundamental debate over the nature of liberty itself your, your, de-
1: your, your definition of freedom is very similar to john paul ii's you know of we're course. not free we're free to do the good clearly yeah of
2: course. Yeah, yeah no i mean th- I, let's, let's face it we are the one institution in the modern world that still retains this this sort of classical christian understanding of liberty is the catholic church and that's what makes it in many ways so hard to be a catholic in a liberal world is because we don't quite fit into the preconceived notion of what freedom is because it doesn't conform to the catholic understanding of freedom
0: i think that's why we as catholics we need to break out of this this right left box now there is a right there is a left okay we we acknowledge that we, we joe and i consider ourselves just more naturally men of the right but not in the american context professor patrick dene who's joining us in the veritas catholic network i think we need to we need to start thinking Differently about our political identification uh, as, as Catholics, because there's a lot of conservatives that look at us like we have three heads. Also, as you mentioned, uh, like if you want to look at uh, the the uh, economic or let's say the social compendium of the Catholic Church, going back to Leo Thirteenth, a lot of conservatives don't want to hear that. In the same way, a lot of the, let's say the leftists who are more sexually liberated, they don't want to hear church teaching on sexual uh, sexual morality. Uh, talk about that a little bit. The need to think beyond, the, the, you know, just the labels of liberal and conservative. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely
2: right. Which is that um, in a liberal polity, um, one is going if if one is a Catholic, if one has this this more classical Christian notion of what liberty is, one is going to have a hard time finding where one fits in and that the left and the right, while apparently constantly at odds with each other, in fact, is kind of together advancing the same basic project. So we have an oscillation of which party, which left and which right is governing us at any given time. And nevertheless, all of us have a feeling like the ratchet wrench only moves in one direction. There's only more and more of this kind of you know the, the form of liberty, uh, which becomes increasingly a kind of libertinism, uh, that comes to define our world today. And so, when we look around us, if we just look around us today, we just kind of see a kind of rolling, unfolding catastrophe that neither party, neither side of the political spectrum is genuinely able to, uh, to challenge or confront precisely because they don't have these concepts or understandings. So, as Catholics. And particularly as American Catholics, in which we are, you know, we entered a tradition that was in certain senses foreign to us. And our grandparents understood this. You know, I mean, they understood they were coming into not just a foreign country, but one that was really if found out on fundamentally different concepts. And at the time that our grandparents and great-grandparents came to America, they understood that there was going to be the need for a kind of evangelization. I think we've lost that sense that we are here to evangelize, even fellow Christians, uh, if they're Protestants, to to understand not just, you know, we have certain, you know, by their view, bizarre ideas about the Virgin Mary or strange views about the saints, we have a fundamentally different understanding of the human person, and human destiny. And I think the, the, the kind of political crisis, the social crisis, the economic crisis that we see unfolding around us is a direct consequence of the false anthropology, the false assumption of human nature uh, that we see. And what is going to be the resource to correct that? I think there's only one, and it's going to be those who understand this Catholic understanding of the human person.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. And we stress that constantly. It all comes down to that. We were made to love God, serve God, and be with him forever. And something breaks when we don't go along with his will, whether you're at the top of the society or the bottom. I We say this constantly. The laws of God apply to you whether you acknowledge them or not. And I want to get, with that said, something you said about liberalism, that to do what you want is at the core, I think, of the political left in America. But that doesn't work. You can't have a society. You can't even run a house. As a father, I have four children. You can't even run a house like that, never mind the country. It's the idea of I will not serve, and it's the word authority that cannot be grasped, even within the church. Obedience, Our Lady, she was obedient. Talk about the need for both authority as well as obedience.
2: So yeah, the I would say the liberal understanding is that uh, all essentially all forms of authority that aren't chosen by the individual. This is, comes back to the idea of consent, right? That we have a, a, laced through the American liberal understanding, all authority that isn't chosen is illegitimate, right? You go back to the Declaration of Independence. This is the argument of the Declaration, right? We were under the authority of the king. You could say that it's deeply steeped in the American sensibility that anyone who has authority probably has it up for reasons that are arbitrary, capricious, and unjustified. It undermines the very legitimacy of the idea of authority uh, because it links authority, because this liberal understanding links authority to the idea that it's illegitimate. And this again is where I think a Catholic understanding, and again, we could also point to the classical tradition of Aristotle, Plato, and so forth, Uh, these understandings point that there's legitimate authority and there's illegitimate authority. It's not just a question that authority is illegitimate. There are legitimate forms of authority, and those forms of authority have to be guided by certain principles. And as Catholics, we would point to the natural law as well as scripture. Uh, But but we could point to those principles that that are understandable through reason, not simply through faith, uh, that are authoritative. And these have to do with things that you were just mentioning, uh, very basic things, commonsensical things, uh, a parent's relationship to children, but also a political ruler's relationship to the people. And there's legitimate forms of political authority and there are illegitimate forms of political authority. But I think if you think about the American sensibility, we tend to be mistrustful of political authority in part because we don't have a good concept of what legitimate, authoritative uh, uh, political uh, decisions and the basis for politics actually looks like. And this is, again, uh, where I think, again, a Catholic understanding can really serve as a corrective to this, I think, fallacious, um, you could say, instinct that has been laced into the American sensibility, whether you're a a Catholic or not a Catholic. Mm -hmm. and and, and So it undermines our own ability to serve as witnesses.
0: Patrick Denine is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pacillo, Joe Ricinello on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial. Um, Professor Denine, you wrote the book, so very, uh, very quickly. How has liberalism failed?
2: So my, the argument in my book is, yeah, it's very simple to, to sum up. Uh, given everything I've just said, so that's, that's a long mm-hmm. introduction. But the conclusion is that liberalism failed because liberalism succeeded in other words everything i just described as at the basis of liberalism the freedom to do as you wish once that succeeds of course then it fails uh, because it's a false understanding of the human person uh, and it leads to catastrophic outcomes in the social order and we can see this again uh, with the undermining I mean, i'll just point to one example i think it should it should resonate uh, with those i think who retain a kind of let's say more traditional catholic understanding of the family when the family structure breaks down, and what is the family structure? Of course, it's the relationship of, of parents and children, but it's also the relationship of grandparents to grandchildren, of cousins to cousins, of siblings to siblings. It, you could say one of the things the family and life in a family teaches us is the interconnection of the generations, how our particular moment in time is not just sort of sequestered and isolated. Just, a, a, just a, that we're just monads uh, swimming in this disconnected ocean of time, that there's a deep connection in the temporal realm, and that connection is experienced by most of us, not by reading history books, but by experiencing it in and through our relationship with grandparents, with children, with parents, and with grandchildren, and if you're blessed, great-grandchildren, this is the palpable way that most of us experience the continuity of time. And this then is the source by which we learn in the deepest sense, we learn the sense of duty and obligation uh, to those uh, who have come before us, who have made our lives possible, who have made our opportunities possible. And it also imbues in us, especially those of us who are heirs of, of those, uh, of those um, actions and contributions of our forebears, it imbues in us a sense of gratitude to those who have come before us. Now, does that describe our civilization today? Is, yeah, it, I one of, is it one of duty and obligation as well as gratitude and thanksgiving? I think we are, in some ways you could say, we are the picture perfect opposite of that, a kind of a dismissiveness, especially toward the past But any society that's dismissive toward the past is also by definition dismissive toward the future. Mm -hmm. It just kind of discounts the future as in any way relevant to me, because it means we've lost the sense of gratitude and obligation that I think are bound together when the temporal sphere is bound together. So how has liberalism failed? It's failed in part because it's failed to do the basic thing of civilization, which is to connect us intergenerationally in and through and across time through these relationships that are begin and are most palpable in and through family life, but then of course spill out into our civic life, into our communal life, into the sense that we have obligations. I I grew up in Connecticut. I grew up surrounded by beautiful churches, the Waterbury Church. I would drive by that all the time, that beautiful cathedral. I grew up in a town, Windsor, Connecticut, Italian and Irish, Polish immigrants built that church, St. Gabriel's Church. These people built this church many of them never expecting never expecting to ever be able to worship in a completed church it would it would take multiple generations to finish these churches look at the churches of of medieval europe Mm -hmm. it would take hundreds and hundreds of years to build those churches so what was in it for them why would they take time out of what was their free time out of lives that were often you know brutally you know subject to the demands of hard hard work it, they took time out of that because they had this sense that I am contributing to something, to the life of my community, to my family, to my fellow neighbors, parishioners, by helping to build uh, this building, this institution that will last well past my lifetime. And where does that sense of duty and obligation comes from? It comes from something that's not liberal. It comes from the opposite. It comes from something in which we see ourselves as bound together through love and obligation.
1: Patrick, you talked about the past. And I mean, you're an East Coast guy. I mean, I'm assuming you're Irish. the the name sounds very irish i mean we're around the same age joe and i grew up in new jersey we're italian i have irish italian polish my neighbors from warsaw i know the deal um the democrats embraced our people clearly you know my grandfather was a factory worker in newark new jersey joe's father was a teamster um where did the party go i mean it it went off the rails but the thing that i struggle with is when you talk to people in their head they still think it's the party of their irish grandfather that worked on the path train in new york city it clearly isn't talk a little bit about how the party went off the rails and frankly how do we communicate to these people who are still completely of that mindset that their grandfather is a democrat and so therefore so should i yeah you
2: probably you probably had a similar experience growing up my we go to visit my grandmother my irish grandmother and she had pictures of john f kennedy and the pope up on the wall you know uh, that these two things went together you 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 were an irish irish catholic meant you were you were an irish democrat catholic uh and of course uh, you know i grew up in that milieu and i you know i would have identified as democrat until fairly recent times i think you can say uh that our our political identities and our religious identities are two of the most you could say defining identities that we have as human beings it's kind of you know it's at some level kind of tribal it's what we grow up with it's what we're steeped with it's how we understand ourselves so to change something like your religion or to change something like your political party it's very you know it's wrenching it's existentially um you know, it, it fundamentally redefines who I am. And it's been a long process for many of those former Irish Catholic or Catholic of any ethnicity Catholic uh, Democrats to, to move initially away from the Democratic Party and even to begin to vote um, Republican. Uh, and this was, of course, uh, the beginnings of this was what was called the Reagan Democrats, the 1980 election, uh, when, you know, for the beginnings of significant numbers uh, form uh, largely Catholics uh, who had been lifelong Democrats began voting uh, for the Republican Party, but they've switched back and forth. And you know, when you talk about the swing vote, the swing vote tends to be the Catholic vote. I mean, this is really what it comes down to is that there's a roughly a five percent, five percent of the American population that will move between the two parties, and it tends to be, tends to be Catholics who, you know, depending on what they're hearing from the various candidates it will appeal more to that catholic sensibility so it does show that there's still a kind of you know not being quite at home with either party Uh, i do think that um there was a very conscious decision and frankly it was very conscious and very planned decision by the democratic party in the late 1960s really beginning in 68 69 uh to move away from the irish catholic voting population the traditional urban labor um Ethnic uh, Irish, Irish, Polish, uh, um, Italian, uh, German, Catholic, so forth, uh, to move away from those voters. And it was for two. I think I would say two main reasons. Um, of the first of these was Vietnam. It was the Vietnam War, and these voters tended to support uh, the uh, tended to support the U.S. efforts in Vietnam, and more than that, were strenuously anti-communist. And there's one thing you could say is a defining feature. Of Catholicism, as much as it might have problems with certain aspects of capitalism, of course it has profound problems uh, and disagreements with communism. This is again steeped into the Catholic understanding and sensibility. And as in uh, in the late '60s, as the Democratic Party began to move in a more sort of, we need to learn to get along with the Soviet Union. We can't just you know try to overturn communism. Uh, that Vietnam was a real watershed event. Uh, the um, the parties, uh, the parties began to, to move in, you know, kind of interesting opposite directions uh, in, in that regard. And the other, the other reason is, is civil rights. Uh, you had many urban, largely um, lower middle class to poor Catholics who were living in areas where the elites decided this is where integration was going to take place, that busing was going to take place in the, the neighborhoods, not where the elites lived. Uh, and this, you know, this ended up really, you know, so you had kids being bussed, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles away uh, in order to integrate the schools. But it wasn't affecting the upper classes. Uh, it was affecting especially a lot of these Catholic neighborhoods. And so I don't, I, I, in fact, if you look at the tradition of, of Catholics during the Civil Rights era, and you can point to my own um what would have been uh, my uh, Notre Dame's president, uh, Father Ted Hesburgh, Catholics were in the forefront of the civil rights movement and arguing for the need to recognize the the dignity of every human being. But the political effects of what was being done uh, and how this was being done had a very divisive impact if you look back on those years of the late 60s and early 70s. And so the decision was made in the late 60s that the Democratic Party was going to move away from that voting base that had been their bread and butter since, the, uh, since FDR's presidency, uh, if not before, and begin to attract uh, especially younger voters, college students who were protesting the Vietnam War, uh, women voters, especially single women voters, um, uh, African-American voters, the, the change of the two parties in that respect, um, and then just more, progressive, you know, more hippie-type voters. And we can see the fruits of this now. Uh, I mean, gen, it's literally that the parties have kind of have have switched, that the old Democratic Party has increasingly moved to the Republican Party. But this is – and I'm sorry to go on at length. No, it's good. It's yeah. very because, good. The history but, is fantastic. But this is, it is a really interesting history uh, because, of course, it's had profound effects on the Republican Party. Uh, be, the Republican Party had to, in some ways, bring in a group of people that was not part of its original dna and among other things these people were not necessarily as hardcore libertarian uh, on economic and other and other spheres so the, the republican party tended to be the, the more country club upper class once you bring in all these sort of old democratic um, uh, catholics into the party uh, the republican party starts to develop this internal kind of a split And I think, you know, it really took until 2016 uh, for this to really manifest itself. And you had Donald Trump running on what was incredibly sort of against the Republican orthodoxy, arguing for things such as, you know, we needed to keep social welfare benefits. We weren't going to cut, we weren't going to cut Social Security. But he didn't run on the tax cut agenda. He ran on, we're going to provide for, we're going to have broad-based social Uh, welfare policy for you know every citizen not targeted at at, at particular populations but you know a broad broad safety net for every every citizen every working citizen working class citizen especially Uh, but also that we were going to um cease the kind of foreign adventurism uh, overseas again we're seeing interesting interesting consequences of that of course in recent days so it, it introduced an element into what had been a kind of traditional republican party of the country club republican party and we've seen now the transformation and changes of the republican party much more recently and much more profoundly uh, just in the last several
0: years i think it, i i think it's important to know tell me what you think about this professor denneen uh patrick Denine is joining us here at the front line with joe and joe joe Pasillo and joe racinello and the veritas catholic network i heard an interesting one i remember and i was not as politically minded and certainly not as catholic in 1996 as i am now okay but i heard an interesting one that donald trump's presidency his election in 2016 was really a the, the the election of Pat Buchanan and his and his ideas that twenty years prior had been rejected by the Christian evangelicals by the Ralph Reeds of this world. No offense to Ralph Reed, but that's just the way it is. Okay, Pat Buchanan represented something different. So yes, on family and uh, and on abortion, um, yes, we're with you on that. But you're too Catholic on those economic questions. Comment on, we have about maybe two minutes left before the break. I love your comments on that because I heard that and I said, wow, that's pretty interesting. Donald Trump is actually our first real Catholic president, or was anyway.
2: Yeah, I I, probably, if I could go back and do things, I'd rather have had Pat Buchanan as as president (laughs) than Donald Trump. Um, But I think this is absolutely right uh, that uh, that, uh, Donald Trump, I think it just pure intuition. I don't think it was grand strategy on his part. I think he just intuited, as a businessman would, that there was a market that wasn't being served. And uh, Pat Buchanan was the original one to identify this this market. And he's someone who came out of this, this Irish Catholic world. I mean, he was a student. I think he was expelled from Georgetown. This was always a, a bit of a interesting history when I was teaching at Georgetown was to talk about how Pat Buchanan refused to come back to campus after having been bounced from campus. But he was a guy who came from this hard scrabble Irish Catholic background. uh, And I think he was someone who understood that this is exactly what the Republican Party needed to become in some ways because of the change of the demographics of who was supporting the party, that, that he was the kind of insurgent candidate. And of course, he was early. And the, the kind of establishment Republicans were still able to beat that back. Uh, but by 2016, with a with a, a very different insurgent uh, candidate, candidate uh, Donald Trump, who I think we have to remember, really ran first and foremost against the Republican Party, or against what had been the Republican Party establishment. We tend to think of him, oh, he beat the Democratic Party. He beat Hillary Clinton. To get to that point, he had to beat the Republican Party establishment. He had to beat like 16 other candidates, all of whom would have been acceptable to the Republican establishment, uh, and he had to beat them. And this, this, of course, then turned into the never Trump people, many of whom who went on to, to support Joe Biden uh, in the most recent election. So mm-hmm. we, have, we have right now this really interesting kind of upheaval taking place in both the political parties, a kind of realignment that began back in these late 60s. Uh, and at the heart of that story are these Catholics who have had a difficult time finding a home in the American political order, uh, but which now increasingly seems to be the case for those people who are, I think, seriously and sort of deeply informed by Catholic teaching, that it's likely to be the Republican Party in the future. And the real question to my mind is how much can Catholics have an influence in not just becoming, again, the junior coalition partner, as they have been for a very long time in the United States, but rather beginning to lead through their understanding of uh through a kind of deep steep understanding of catholic social teaching to begin to contribute to a change and potentially i think i hope a kind of betterment and transformation of the american political order
0: we we have to take a break professor Denine. um thank you for that i think it's important to note i remember like it was yesterday and then we'll take a quick break the national review i remember the headline like it was yesterday where it, a picture of pat buchanan and it said i'm paraphrasing is america ready for pat buchanan's brand of socialism and I remember then saying, that's not true, right. I, even then. And, and again, you know, I remember saying, that's not true. Pat Buchan's not a socialist, but even the national review kind of back in the day, when against Pat Buchanan. Let's take a break. This is a fascinating conversation. For all of you out there just joining us, you're listening to Joe and Joe at the Frontline with Patrick J. Denine, Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame University on the Veritas Catholic Network. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please follow Joe and I on social media, primarily right now, Facebook and YouTube. Uh, stick around. Stick around. We have a, another segment of this conversation Like you said, you're going to love it.
3: Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Paggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then at 1230 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app.
0: Welcome back everyone to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pacillo and Joe Resinello, way in the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. We're having a fascinating conversation with Professor Patrick J. Deneen from Notre Dame University. And with that, I'm gonna hand that over to Joe Resinello.
1: Dr. Dineen, you said something on the other side of the break that I I wanted to bring up with you. You talked about the Catholic vote, how it could be the swing vote. It it seems to me that within the Catholic vote, there's a split, too. There's almost this idea of, like, the American Catholic um, who can vote, say, for a pro-abortion candidate. Like, like... To me, people say I'm a one-party voter. Well, that's a big issue. Just like I wouldn't vote for someone who's for slavery. I wouldn't vote for I wouldn't vote for you, no matter what. I don't care what else you have to say. Talk about the Catholic vote and this split that has taken place as in it and the need to basically, I guess, to catechize this vote, you know, ultimately for the salvation of the of souls you know never mind political power talk a little bit about that
2: yeah so i mean i i wrote this book in 2018 why liberalism failed and i think this is the first time i'll say this in the like, almost 3 years since i've been talking about this book um I really wrote this book mainly and primarily for my fellow Catholics. Uh, You know, I'm very happy that many other people discovered it and think there's something of value in it. Uh, But I really wrote it for fellow Catholics and for the following reason. What I really wanted fellow Catholics to understand was that in the United States, in the political configuration that we have before us, you're forced to choose, in a sense, between two forms of liberalism, between a kind of right liberalism and a left liberalism, that this tends to be the kind of uh, the the way in which the American political order has split up the political pie. And this is why I think for many Catholics, they find themselves in a kind of position of not being, you know, feeling completely at home in either political party, precisely because it asks you to, uh, to compromise on a position or positions that run deeply against what would be your you know your your fullest commitments. Now that I'm speaking now about the Catholics who are well at least reasonably well formed don't feel at home. But I think something else has happened. I think it's palpable in the last 20, 30, 40 years, certainly with my generation and especially my kids' generation, which is that the more that we in a sense of Catholics have been catechized by this American political order and this American culture, I think the less we feel this internal division, the sense that neither party is is where we can feel at home because neither conforms to our Catholic understanding. In other words, I think we've been catechized by a liberal order to understand ourselves primarily in terms of that liberal order and to divide ourselves as a faith and as a church in accordance with that liberal order. And so we now call ourselves a left Catholic or a right Catholic, but that means you're not being really a Catholic you're not being fully a Catholic because it's, because to be fully a Catholic means you can't conform and compromise in some various areas where that runs completely counter to the faith. And of course, I think this is most clear and most obvious on the, the issue and the matter that you put before us, I mean, it's just, there's just no room for any, any dubiousness, uh, which is on the question of life and on abortion. There's just simply, there, there, to be a Catholic is to be in favor of human life from conception until natural death that's just that's not a debatable point it's just a fact and when you hear you know so-called left catholics today you know democratic catholics sort of hemming and hawing on how their pro-choice position conforms to their catholicism this is just a lie and it's and it's a kind of lie that's happening at the level of kind of an intellectual effort to conform their, what is supposed to be their faith uh, to this political position, but they no longer see this as a kind of internal conflict. If for them, they have fully acclimated to this liberal worldview. So as I say, I wrote this book in part to help my fellow Catholics, especially American Catholics, to understand that we were, we were essentially, we have been colonized. Our faith, our church has been colonized by a kind of foreign faith, if I can put it in that sense. And we need to understand that the costs of this, right, isn't just of course. It's not just political. Uh, the costs of this are really ultimately uh, to to conform yourself to a kind of falsity, right? Mm-hmm. To a false to a false understanding of the human person, and ultimately, uh, I don't say this in the book, but ultimately, uh, to lose our path to salvation, right? To lose our path to the genuine gift that was given to us by Christ's incarnation. Uh, so I, I I think that this is. This is the area in which we can't catechize this culture as Catholics in significant part because we have been colonized or catechized by this, by this culture, uh, by, this, by this political and social order, uh, that we need to learn, we need to re-educate ourselves on, uh, on how we can be genuine witnesses uh, in, in confronting uh, the, these falsehoods.
0: That's that's one of the reasons I am so happy you're saying that, Professor Dineen, because it's one of the reasons why Joe decided to, to start doing our show three years ago, both on social media and now we're on uh, the Veritas Catholic Network is for that reason. It was because not, not because we're the, we're the smartest guys in the room, OK, but we get what you're saying. And we all need to tell our fellow Catholics and others of goodwill, no, 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 you're operating under false assumptions whether you're a left, as you said, whether you're a left Catholic or a right Catholic, okay? Which you should be neither, you should just be Catholic. But you need to start challenging the assumptions of your party or your movement to say, like we've had to do that, Joe and I, we're politically conservative, we believe in free markets, okay? Not in the same way, let's say I'm not beating them up, uh, but not in the same way, let's say a Sean Hannity does, okay? Or people like that who seem to want to, for lack of a better phrase, bend the knee to the free market. Where free market's not God. God's law governs the free market just like God's law governs our sexuality. There's you can't separate the two. It's a challenge, but that's one, I'm glad you're saying it, because that that you know, because that's what we need to do so that we 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 educate people. I wanna stay on though, Professor Denine. I wanna stay on conservatism for a minute. Okay. Um in an article in the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was Micah uh Meadowcroft, she was commenting on your ideas in an article that you had written. Or it might have been about why liberalism failed. But on conservatism, she says, uh, true conservatism, especially articulated by Edmund Burke, is driven by a gratitude towards the past, uh, Mr. Deneen, as well as by a corresponding sense of obligation and responsibility, which we've already touched on. Where has conservatism failed in conserving that?
2: Yeah, so uh, so actually, Micah, uh, um, who's who's a he, and that's not not just pronouns. Um, I'll correct the record. Uh, is that's okay? Uh, he was actually uh, writing a review. It was a very generous review of a previous book that I wrote, "Conserving America?" Question mark Which you okay. in your introduction. Uh And uh, it was a generous review. And what he was what he was particularly commenting on, uh, I think, was the, in some ways, precisely what we were talking about earlier. But let me, I can amplify some of those. Uh, comments, which is that uh, th- there's a real there's a real question mark whether there is a conservative tradition in America. And uh, so, going back to the 1950s, well before this, we were talking about the late 60s earlier. In the early 50s, you had this flowering of an intellectual movement, the beginnings of a flowering of an intellectual movement and it was especially spearheaded by uh, um, uh, eventually a Catholic convert, uh, Russell Kirk, who I hope whose name might be known to many of your listeners. Mm -hmm. Uh, Russell Kirk, who became kind of the great-grandfather, the grandfather grandfather of the conservative movement that culminated in the election of of Ronald Reagan. Uh, In 1953, Russell Kirk uh, published what had been his dissertation Uh, a book called The Conservative Mind, which which became an absolute blockbuster bestseller, reviewed multiple times in the New York Times, widely discussed. And one of the things that was discussed then, and I think uh, maybe we don't understand why it was as discussed then, but one of the things that was discussed then was whether there was a conservative tradition in America. What Kirk understood is that conservatism was not, I think, what we might define conservatism as which conservatism, I think we would think of conservatism today as in some ways a kind of mix. uh, We would think about it in in kind of Ronald Reagan era terms, a kind of mix of free market ideology, uh, a kind of vigorous, if not uh, expansionist foreign policy, uh, an imperial foreign policy, um, which was, of course, justified under the name of anti-communism, but became a kind of we have to transform the world in the name of, of liberal democracy. And again, we're seeing the fruits of that in many ways in Afghanistan uh, in these days. Uh, and then social conservatism, uh, which was largely seen as that's the venue uh, or those are the people for whom appointments to the Supreme Court is going to be important. It essentially boils down to overturning Roe versus Wade. But what we should notice is that the other two aspects of what was called conservatism, the free market ideology and the kind of expansionist foreign policy actually did not conform all that well to a broader understanding of social conservatism. What is needed to have a kind of traditional society in which generations are linked to each other, as we were talking about earlier, in which memory and obligation is cultivated, in which a sense of self-sacrifice, duty, a willingness to defer to authority is cultivated? That's not a free market ideology. That's not the ideology of the free market. If anything, the free market is all about you get to do what you want to do. That's what it is. It's the freedom to be, to do, to define myself. Right. The ultimate expression of the free market ideology is transgenderism. I get to define who I am. I get to define my own identity. It's just another consumer purchase for me. In fact, I want the government to pay for this particular consumer sure. purchase ultimately. Right, so you could say the free market, we could, say, we could say, I think, as Catholics, going all the way back to Leo Thirteenth. Leo you know, Thirteenth affirms the centrality and importance of private property, but that's different than the free market ideology, which says that the, the, the full flourishing of the free market is to do what you want. To be an owner of private property, to be a proprietor, is to be someone with duties and obligations and a sense of responsibility in place and in time, a kind of contributor and supporter of one's community. I, I loved where I grew up in Connecticut, in Windsor, Connecticut, at the time I grew up in because most of the kids I went to school with, or an awful lot of kids I went to school with, were children of the store owners in the town I grew up in. So all those kids, you'd go to their stores and you'd be talking to their parents. You'd go to their, you're know, go to their parents' stores and you'd be meeting their parents. They would know you. These were the people who sponsored the Little League clubs in the town, and they would have a they'd have a, a float in the parade. And they they cared about the, the town. This is what kept the town a flourishing, vibrant center. And guess what? They're all out of business now because the Walmarts and the Targets and the big box stores all came in and drove them all out of business. And are they making sure downtown Windsor is a beautiful place? I mean, I hate going back there now mm-hmm. because it's an empty shell. Those those storefronts are empty, right? CBD stores. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's it's been in some ways destroyed by a, a certain kind of ideology in which our understanding of what the role that the market and that private property plays in a flourishing community, has to be informed by an ethos different than liberalism.
0: I want to hand it so, over so,
2: to Joe. So, so, just to just to conclude, modern conservatism has actually, in its political form, has undermined our ability to conserve things we would want to conserve, and that's why I think micah was pointing to in that review, and what mm-hmm. I was pointing out in that book, which is that what we call conservatism has been no less successful, and in fact has been arguably as destructive, in UNDERMINING A CONSERVATIVE SOCIETY OR a SOCIETY THAT CONSERVES.
0: Well, I'm, I'M GLAD YOU'RE SAYING IT, BECAUSE IT'S LIKE YOU SAID EARLIER, AND I'M GOING TO HAND IT OVER TO JOE. WE NEED TO START CHALLENGING THE RIGHT, TOO. AND FOR REASONS THAT YOU JUST OUTLINED, BECAUSE, LOOK, WE'RE ALL AROUND THE SAME AGE. IN Newark, NEW JERSEY, WHERE WE GREW UP, WE, we REMEMBER THOSE, YOU USED THE WORD VIBRANT. WHY? BECAUSE IT WAS THE GARDEN OF EDEN? NO but it was a vibrant place. You had small businesses, like you said, men went out and had good union jobs in Port North, where my father worked for consolidated freightways. They came back, supported local businesses, butchers, things like that. It's not a Norman Rockwell painting, but the reality of when we grew up is much better than the reality that these kids are growing up with now. Let me hand it over to Joe, (laughs) because we could go on for hours, but we can't, unfortunately. So Joe, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Dr. Danine, we talked to Josh Mitchell at Georgetown about a book he wrote about political identity. I'm very interested in your comments because we see this on both the right and the left. People identify <clears throat> with their religious, uh, with their political party, as if it's a religion. And even when their party, whether Democratic or Republican, do something fundamentally wrong. They almost cannot acknowledge it because it's almost like they're rejecting their very self. And that is a danger. And we see it all over the news, whatever channel you decide to turn on to. Talk about this idea of this pseudo religious venue that is associated with political identity in America right now.
2: Yeah, so I, I, it's interesting you mentioned Josh Mitchell. He was—he's uh, uh, actually a friend, a former colleague of mine at Georgetown University, where I taught for many years, uh, and I'm—I'm I'm very familiar with his his newest book. Uh, and if you don't mind, I might, might adjust uh, your question slightly Please. to just just to uh, just to just to actually to to recommend to your listeners that they pick up, consider picking up Josh Mitchell's book, which is really very fine. It's called American Awakening. Uh, But what Josh is really interested in that book is to point to the ways that especially, I think, a kind of mutation, we could say a kind of natural mutation of liberalism has occurred in recent years. And it's one that we're witnessing taking place, you know, sort of just immediately right before our eyes. And we often call it wokeism. Uh, It's kind of a, it's a a further advance of progressivism. And it does touch on just a a comment that I made in in the last answer, uh, which is the way in which something like transgenderism, sexual identity, and so forth, now becomes the kind of new, the way in which um, uh, our sort of, the project of modern liberty expresses itself most fully. So modern liberty is the thing, is the the ability, the uh, the the uh, capacity to do what I want to do. Well, what are some of the things that most minimize or limit my natural or what what we believe to be our our God-given liberty to do what I want? Well, it's things like my biology. My biology is this kind of hard limit to do the things that I want to do. So what becomes the next step in the movement of liberalism? is to say there is no limit. There is no biological limit to being what you want to be. So if you wanna change your, your gender, if you want to have a child outside of the human biology, if you wanna you know, breed children in little containers, this is all of course the next step that we're seeing take place taking place before us. This, this mutation or transmutation or development within liberalism is now, because it's, it's, because it's now moving into realms where you could say they're at the outer limit of where the the sort of the actual ability of human beings to transform the given world really confronts these hard limits. Our biology, uh, our sexuality, is now taking the form of a kind of religious fervor, right? That the anyone who denies that I have the freedom to to transform my own sexuality now becomes someone that. Isn't just to, isn't to someone who disagrees with me, but has to be denounced as a full-fledged heretic against what is now a religious fervent fervor and belief that my ability to do what I want to do has to be understood to be limitless. You're not allowed to say or to suggest that I'm I'm I, I'm free to do as I wish, and this is the way in which liberalism becomes. We could say transforms itself into, in some ways, the opposite of Catholicism. It is, it is a religious set of beliefs that is in almost every particular, the opposite of Catholicism. If we were to list what is Catholicism, what are the core beliefs of Catholicism? One of those is that God created man and woman, right? So it's not just that we were created with certain sexualities, it's that we were created by God. And liberalism in its core understanding ultimately moves to the point where it says, we create ourselves. We are self-creators. And if we're not fully self-creators, we're in some senses sinning against liberalism. If you deny that I'm a self-creator, you're sinning against liberalism. What Josh's book really, I think, nicely captures and points to is the way in which we are really confronting not just a political movement, but a successor religion. And why the confrontation today is taking the form that it is. It's not just a political disagreement between parties. It is a profound theological confrontation. You could say a kind of theological war in which those who still retain, whether they're Catholic or not, whether they re- for those who retain those older beliefs that comes from an ancient civilization was, was developed uh, and transported into modernity through Catholicism and the successor ideology and even religion of liberalism are now confronting each other on a kind of modern battlefield. And that battlefield of things like Twitter and political parties and elections, but it is no less the battlefield uh, in which Satan met met Saint Michael. You know, it is very much that kind of battle that we're in the midst of today.
0: And what, and what bothers me more than anything is, I wish they would at least acknowledge. See, I wish they would acknowledge the battle and just keep the uh, the the playing for the battlefield even. Because I don't have a problem acknowledging that there's a battle, Professor Denine. What I have a problem with is when the when the when those uh, like Twitter and Facebook and the rest of them want to shut us all down, you know, for simply for simply wanting to engage in this battle. You know, if we feel as Catholics we're being attacked, well, then I feel the need to defend and then go on the offensive. They won't let me do it. Go ahead, I cut you off. I'm sorry.
2: No, 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 no. I just wanted to say that of course those who run those companies are they're not neutral. They're not providing a neutral battlefield. They're members. Of, of the, you could say, the, the other army. So of course they're going to de- seek to t- uh, attempt to define the terms in which the contest is being waged. Mm-hmm. So I think their response is we're under no ob- obligation to give our adversaries any advantage. And this is why I think for those of, of a Catholic worldview who call themselves perhaps more conservative today, really need to be thinking about how are we going to engage what is now the powers of the world who really control, you know. The flow of information right the kind of you could say the the sources of power today which are less you know the swords and the uh the bows and arrows of yesteryear but which today are the platforms where this kind of information is shared And i think we're we're, we're playing catch-up uh and uh, uh you know but i but i think there's a genuine growing understanding that this is one of the areas where simply just to say well, the market will work this out. This is just not the case. Mm. This is a case in which uh, there might need to be the use and exercise of political power to rein in the tyrannical impulses of these kinds of free market or private entities that, nevertheless, uh, are tilting what is and otherwise should be a kind of public debate.
1: Mm. I mean, the premise of your book, "Why Liberalism Failed," is is because it succeeded. We talked about that on the other side of the break. Clearly, this idea of wokeism is grounded in error. It's clearly, and that's just not my opinion. Do you think it has a sustainable future? I mean, you look at the political landscape right now, all the elites have embraced it. I mean, it's actually frightening. As as a man who's raising young children, um, it's frightening. The, The public schools have embraced it. Does it have a sustainable future? Ultimately, yes, it will fail. But how long will it succeed? That's uh, that's the that's the
2: the, t- the ten thousand dollar question. Uh, and I wish I had a crystal ball to to tell you. I, I think it's um I think it's fundamentally unsustainable because it's, as we've been saying it's premised on a false understanding of the human person and therefore must fail. You can't build a human society on a falsehood, and this goes back. We can say this goes back to John Paul II and Benedict XVI, who understood, and particularly John Paul II, who understood in his time and growing up where he grew up that Nazism and communism are false ideologies, and that you know the time when at the time he grew up in Poland, it seemed to anyone growing up in Poland that the Soviet Union and communism would be the everlasting regime, that it was all powerful, uh, that it controlled every aspect of life. The things that we're describing. Uh, is true in our society today. It seems like there's an all-powerful entity that controls all. It controls the universities, it controls the media, it controls the you know the schools, it controls uh, journalism, uh, it controls entertainment. A- anywhere you look, it's dominated by this kind of progressive wokeism. The elites control this, and yet I I think in the same way that John Paul II understood that there's a kind of deep fragility of any system that's premised on a false understanding of the human person that I just, I, I just can't help but sense that there's a kind of brittleness and fragility in what otherwise seems to be an all powerful set of actors and institutions today. And, and, I, and, I, and I point to the fragility as in some ways com- comparable to that of communism at the time when it was beginning to crumble. The the more brittle and fragile it becomes, the more false its ideology is, the more it will have to impose its view through the raw exercise of power, through the raw imposition of the heavy hand of the political or social order. So you could say communism was in some ways at its most powerful when people believed in it. when people weren't actively fighting against it, when the, the Soviet citizens were all in on it. And as its falsehoods became more and more clear, people became disillusioned. And the more they become disillusioned, the more then they have to sort of force the ideology upon people. And that's where it seems we're moving today, that the sort of progressive powers in the United States that seem otherwise to be so ineffably powerful are really just exposing how much they have to force their ideology today on people who increasingly simply just don't believe it, it just it just seems to be fundamentally false.
1: Did so Solzhenitsyn just to be, yeah, say yeah, something sorry. similar to that? I mean, I, not to cut you up, but he said, "They lie. We know they're lying. They know we know they're lying, but they keep on lying." It yeah. almost seems like that's the case. Yeah, and of course Solzhenitsyn then said, uh, "Don't don't uh, don't accept the lie.
2: I tell the truth. Live not by lies." Is his famous phrase says, so as long as the famous image um, uh, from uh, Vaclav, I believe it was Vaclav Havel, the greengrocer who puts the sign up on his uh, greengrocer store every day, workers of the world unite. He knows Marxism is a falsehood, but he did it because he just wanted to get along and didn't want to be a troublemaker. The day that he doesn't put up the sign is the day that he begins to tell the truth. And then he either gets crushed Or other people begin to say, you know what, I'm not going to lie any longer either. So it does take a degree of courage for that first person or those first people to say, I'm not going to live by this lie anymore. I'm going to say no. Uh, But once one person does it, it can inspire others. And then before long, it really becomes a wave that can't finally be suppressed by the regime.
0: I think that's why it's important that all of us open our mouths and try to encourage other people i would say this that green grocer or you mentioned souls they had a lot sacrificed a lot more in speaking out against that regime than what we in our opinion at the front line with joe and joe professor duney we think people just need to start sacrificing a little bit let's say for argument's sake who's one of the biggest culprits in this culture war hollywood but then ask the average conservative to cancel their netflix subscription or their hbo subscription all right, or, or to make the small sacrifices, maybe to take money away from Amazon, take money away from uh, uh the big box stores, as you mentioned earlier. We're asking people that to make little sacrifices that can have a wide-ranging effect. And in America, it doesn't seem like we're even able to, you know, to, to convince people to do that. Rather than and, and and imagine if it came down to where they have to have real courage, you know, let's say the greengrocer or a guy like Solzhenitsyn. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? We have about a minute left.
2: Yeah. Well, I uh I think it's absolutely right, and I, I do hope that people begin to uh, awaken to the need uh, to exercise the power of the purse in this case uh, to rein in uh, through their to the extent that they can through their individual choices as as uh, consumers uh, to begin to act uh, to, to act out their their beliefs in the economic sphere. But I also I, I think I, I do want to add. Uh, that that I think to speak out may entail consequences that are actually pretty significant. Uh, you know, I work in a world in which if you speak out on some of these issues that I, that I've been speaking out on, I hope my ten- I hope my tenure is uh, is worth the, the paper it's written on. Uh, in which I, I, you know, increasingly someone like me could be fired from a position, academic position, a business position, and we, we've seen people, we've seen people f- hi- fired from various tech companies, Google. Uh, Microsoft, so forth, uh, for speaking out about things like gender, think, speaking on things about sexuality. Uh, and, and we're seeing increasingly arguments made by the other side uh, that you know, your creditworthiness, uh, whether or not you can get a loan or uh, whether a church can be a tax-exempt institution, will depend on their willingness to conform uh, to the demands of the regime. So I think there's 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 there going to be ample opportunity, if not already, for the kind of courage that we saw among the dissidents uh, in the, in, under the, the reign of communism, but I have enough faith in the human spirit and in, the, in, in our capacity to act according to the truth, even if those consequences are severe, uh, that especially as Catholics, uh, as those who were raised in the blood of the church, uh, understand that nothing, nothing shall stand in the way of speaking out on behalf of the truth.
0: That's that's a great place, Professor Denine, to end the conversation. We wanna thank you so much for joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, these are the these are the conversations that we need to have on, on a broader on a broader scale, and we really want to we really want to thank you for, for for joining us here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we want to thank you all for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Remember, Joe and I are spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the uh, uh, to Connecticut. Westchester and Northern Long Island. Remember also download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content and follow Joe and I wherever you find us. Frontline TV, Frontline with Joe and Joe. Like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. Thank you once again to Professor Patrick J. Dineen for joining us. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.